Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, a middle grade novel about two 11-year-old detectives who get into high-concept sci-fi adventures. Uh, and you can get Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, and then once you're hooked on the series, come see me with money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, uh, which will be available February 21st of 2021. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now a Zombie Story, uh, and my uh, serial horror novel, The Book of David. Uh, if you're curious about that one, you can get the Book of David Chapter 1 by Robert Kent also as an ebook that's free whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold, or if you check the back catalog uh, toward the start of quarantine, I recorded a uh, an amateur uh, audiobook version of that. Um, so that's it. We don't have time to, to waste on ads today, my friend. What an episode I have uh, for you. Uh, because today we are talking with uh, V.G. Neary, uh, and we're talking about all kinds of fantastic stuff. He's going to explain how he creates character voices, because um, few authors are, are as adept at, at uh, speaking direct from a character's voice as G. Neary, and uh, he gives me a little bit of his methodology for, for creating that. We talk about how he looks for alligators. Uh, he talks about um, renting videos from a free reservoir of dogs, Quentin Tarantino, working with Chick Corea, meeting Ray Bradbury, um, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, originally, we had uh, planned this to coincide with the release of the film version of one of my favorite books, Ghetto Cowboy. The film version is called Concrete Cowboy, uh, starring Idris Elba, uh, and that had meant to be uh, released by now. It should be in theaters, but of course, um, 2020 has been a year for lots of movies that should have been in theaters and, and, and ended up not being. So it's going to be on Netflix uh, next year. I can't wait to see it. Don't have an exact release date yet, although by golly, when it comes uh, when it comes out, I'm sure the, the press will be uh, everywhere because this is going to be just a tremendous film. Uh, assuming that they, they, they follow the uh, path of, of Gene Neary's tremendous book, Ghetto Cowboy. Uh, one quick note. At one point, I say that Idris Elba played the greatest cowboy on screen. That's not quite true. Obviously, the greatest cowboy on screen is probably William Money from uh, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Possibly Arthur Morgan from Red Dead Redemption 2. What I meant was uh, Idris Elba in playing Roland Deschain in The Dark Tower. Uh, played the greatest cowboy in literature, um, which is certainly true. And that film, well, you know, the, the trailer for that film was amazing. Uh, once in a while, I'll, I'll pull up the trailer and I'll watch it again. And I think, oh, man, I hope that movie someday comes out that's as good as that trailer. And then I forget the fact that, that the movie actually did come out. Uh, anyway, um, we can get... Uh, more excited when Idris Elba graces our Netflix screens next year um, on Concrete Cowboy. Uh, and right now, enough rambling from me. Let's let's start the show. Gene Neary for episode 99 starts right now. Gene Neary, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am thrilled to have you with me. Um, 
I've been looking forward to chatting with you for uh, weeks and maybe months. I don't remember how long ago uh, we started talking about this, but I, it was been a bright spot in my future. Like one day, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to talk to Gene Neary. <laughs> been busy lately. <laughs> I see that you've got all kinds of great stuff going on. So probably the best place to start. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I know some podcast hosts um, do the biography for the guest which seems real professional-like, but I get annoyed when they get it wrong if they leave if they leave great stuff out. So rather than risk that, I just ask our guests to start by giving a esteemed audience an overview of your background. Right. Well, I think uh, the best word to describe me is storyteller. Uh, I have a, a background in film and in digital media and animation, illustration, um, but writing has really been my thing for the last uh, 15 years maybe um, and I've done a bunch of books for young people and they range from you know young adult to grade school kind of middle school is my sweet spot you know uh, upper grade to lower high school and um, you know the thing that connects my books all of them is they're all inspired by real life so these are all stories that I stumble across usually completely by accident like some world, some place, some event, some person that I never knew anything about. And it was literally like kind of stops you in your tracks kind of thing. Only to discover nobody's ever written about this particular topic or person or place. And me just feeling as I start to get into it, like just compelled. Like I just want to read that book, but nobody's done it. So I feel like I have to do it um, because I can see it instantly kind of what that thing could be as far as a book. Um, so it doesn't matter. I mean, some, of, some of those are fiction that are inspired by real life. Some are nonfiction. Um, you know, they're novels, graphic novels, poetry. So the form is really dictated by the story. And most of my stories are written in first person voice um, just because I think my strength is kind of dialogue driven and I like the idea of people telling stories you know to one another and so I just have a character telling you the story and it's for me it's like I can act through that character you know that's like the key to discovering a character is hearing them talk and, and get into tell me a story and I'm kind of translating it, you know, for the reader. So it's kind of unusual in that, you know, my story is like one minute I have no idea about something and the next minute it's like, you know, this chunk of gold just falls in your lap and it's kind of like, oh, <laughs> uh, that looks good. <laughs> and it's kind of like some of them are really like immediate, like I know exactly what it is. It's like, and it can't be denied kind of and sometimes I have to figure it like I know there's gold in there and I have to kind of figure out start digging for it and it will kind of reveal itself but I know it's in there so only cool. writing could be nothing but the gold yeah. <laughs> wouldn't that be perfect yeah um yeah and I travel a lot and I do a lot of school visits around the country and that kind of keeps me connected uh, with the people I write for, you know, 
And so it's a nice circle and, and the people I meet and the students I meet like also inspire these stories too. So it's kind of like a full circle thing. Um, it's very interesting and dynamic and very organic and 100% unplanned, <laughs> like from the very beginning. Well, I remember uh, uh, Ghetto Cowboy, which I was uh, enjoying again this week. Um, I, I remember one of my, um, there's a lot of things to like about that book, but one of my favorite things is Cole's voice mm -hmm. um, and, and how uh, authentic it feels to me, acknowledging that I wouldn't, I, I haven't met Cole, so I couldn't 100% guarantee that it is, but it feels extremely authentic. So do you have an acting background? How do you get into the character and you create that? Um, I mean, because I've worked in film and theater, like I've been around actors, I've dabbled, but I would never call myself an actor. But um, it, it does feel like acting through these characters in a way. Um, I found it very easy. Like when I started working with kids, like particularly like middle school kids early on, I found it very easy to talk to them and relate to them and kind of go back to that time in my life. And, you know, I like the way people really talk <laughs> as opposed to like, I mean, some people are brilliant writers and they could write a sentence that's so beautiful. You could like frame it. But that's yes, you, you not, are one of those writers. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think of myself as one of those writers. Like I think I can do that through somebody else's voice, right? So I don't like to write beautiful sentences. I like to write beautiful dialogue, like how people talk or how that person is telling the story. And if they're like some urban kid, that gives me a lot of leeway. You know, I can mix it up. I can run on. It can be totally grammatically incorrect, and it, but it's real, right? And so that voice is the key for me telling a story all the time. So once I find the voice, and it's just a matter of like, you know, my process is really like treasure hunting. I'm looking, I'm collecting stories. So Ghetto Cowboy takes place in a particular neighborhood in North Philadelphia that's very unusual. Um, and you know, my job is to just like, like the sociologists just collect stories, like oral stories from people, things that had happened you know, crazy little incidents, like stories you would just tell at a party, like this crazy thing happened, you know, and just kind of meet all different kinds of people. And then, it, you know, it creates a canvas, like a world, and you get a feeling for how people are and how they talk, um, you know, because people everywhere talk with a certain, you know, use certain words in different parts of the country, certain dialects, certain, you know, affectations. Um, you know, how they dress, how they carry themselves. So to me, that's kind of like, once you kind of get that, then you can kind of get a feeling for a place through the people, you know? So that's really what I'm looking for. And I, I don't even do it like consciously, you know, I'm, I just like absorb it, you know? And then the, the voice starts talking, you know, as I write, as I play around with it, you know? So very organic and very kind of like I don't try to force it you know I try to let it happen I saw on Facebook just today uh, that you have discovered a um, uh, what a, 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 
a speak text to text feature on Word that you you were you were you're, you're talking, I might write a whole lot that way. Yeah. So how yeah. would that maybe change the process? Would you be in your office actually acting out the character? You think? Maybe you know it's kind of interesting idea because I'm doing that in my head, in a way, and I'm just wondering like. What happened if I just played the dialogue out, you know, like hacked it out? I'm doing it internally, but what if I like physically did it? So it might be an interesting experiment, <laughs> but it is useful for other things because sometimes, like my my head, my brain moves faster than I can write. So if I can just say it, <laughs> it seems to be able to keep up to me with me. You know, I can just like rattle it off and it keeps up. So maybe. <laughs> and you write uh, about you, you. I mean, you've just got a diverse body of work. I mean, um, you're writing about Johnny Cash. You're writing about Harper Lee and Truman Capote as children, different time periods, uh, different all sorts of different characters. So how does your process change um, when you're when you're dealing with a completely new character, something you haven't it's, done before? It's really just about my own personal interest, like stumbling across something, a story like so fascinating, I just want to know more instantly. And so it really doesn't matter what kind of story it is or what time period or what, you know, who the, the protagonists are. Um, it's really about that story. Like a good, a great story is a great story, like period to me. And, you know, there are certain there are certain orders to that in that, you know, things like fantasy and science fiction are more difficult to me because there's an aspect of like, it's not real because it's a fantastic world that doesn't exist. You're in outer space, you're this or that, you're, you know, so it's hard for me to paint that picture when it's so un unreal even though there are people that do it fantastically, uh, for me to do it is very hard because I can't feel it. It's not, I can't see it. I can't go there. I can't talk to those people. So there's kind of a limit to that in terms of what I feel comfortable doing. But in terms of place or time period, you know, like I can go to Monroeville and literally walk in the footsteps, like I did a little documentary, little 10 minute piece that's on my website about that, just walking in the footsteps and also Johnny Cash, you know, and go, you can go to places that are exactly as they were. And you can stand in the fields behind Johnny Cash's tiny home that he grew up in. Um, and you know, you can feel like he talked about the, the earth being like gumbo. And I never understood what that was until I stepped in the mud behind his house and I lifted up my foot and my boot was just stuck in the mud and my foot literally just came out of my boot. And like this, just being stuck in this place and the wind blowing across the plains and it's just empty as far as the eye, you can see in any direction, just like totally isolated, desolate, you know, that is like, that's something I can work with because I can, it's like immediate and it's like powerful, right? So, you know, like, yeah, it doesn't matter. If, even if it's 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you can still find 
the thing that can paint help paint you the picture in your head you know so i mean when you're choosing stories of from real life i mean all of history is at your disposal um how when do you know that oh that's the one that's i got to do that right um I like to say I don't choose the stories, but the stories choose me. So I'm just minding my own business and something falls in my lap and it's, I can't like ignore it. I can't, I need to know what that is and I need to know immediately. Um, the best case, you know, uh, I wrote a book called Knockout Games and that came about because I was doing school visits in St. Louis and uh you know i was doing a bunch of them over s several days and and i was with a person who was taking me around and we were going to this middle school and right before we went walked into the school one morning we were going to be there all day she was like oh you know something happened at the school a few days ago and i was, was like what it's like well you know swat teams pulled up with in the big trucks and their full-on gear and riot gear and stuff and they basically stormed the school and they arrested eight students you know this is a middle school and it was like oh okay <laughs> it's like, and they wanted you to come there because i mean the staff was having a hard time dealing with this ish the thing that was going on there um but everyone had responded to yummy so they felt that you could talk to these kids you know and we're literally walking in at 7.30 in the morning, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, sure. And we go in and, you know, I'm doing my thing, but I'm really interested in hearing what's going on from their perspective. And the stories they're telling me are just like, oh, you know, like they're just, they look and sound like any student I would meet anywhere in the country, but the stories they're telling me really make me sit up. I, and by the end of the day, I was kind of like, you know, that all this you know it sounds like a book and you know the basic <laughs> feedback was like well yeah well why do you think you're here it's like they want you know they basically wanted me to write their story um and and even though i was in the middle of another project that had a deadline and was already under contract when I got back home i couldn't stop thinking about it and i immediately knew how it was going to open i had a scene i so I thought, well, I'll just write it down, get it out of my head, and then I'll go back to work on the thing. I'm supposed to wrote, and then the next day it's like, oh, now well, I know what the scene would be after that. But I'll just write that. It's a quick thing, get out, and that kept going on. And then basically, I just ended up writing that straight through, without even planning to, without even trying, and it just poured out like huge amounts of pages very like m much quicker than I ever wrote anything just like boom and I didn't edit myself I didn't worry about structure just let it ride and you know about 80 80 percent of that made the final piece you know and 20 percent was going back and like once I got to the end and seeing what it really was like going back to the beginning and reshaping it a bit you know, and guiding it and massaging it. But that book also had this, sh by far the shortest revision period as well. Because normally 
my process is very organic. So a lot of the writing is the rewriting and just like drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts and shaping, forming. But that one was very like, boom, done. <laughs> so, you know, and I can't explain it, but, and then I look at it afterwards, like I print it out and I, like, I really don't, I mean, intellectually, I know where it came from, but I look at it and I don't know where it came from. Right, I can't explain it. I think my one talent is just like being able to spot a good story when I see it. Well, I can't argue with the results, so that must be so. <laughs> so how um, how is you know, elephant in the room? How's quarantine for COVID nineteen impacting? You who like to travel, who like to go out there and do your investigations and your stories, or yeah. Yeah, gather stories, rather. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I had a very busy spring planned out. You know, I had trips from, I mean, I was on the road up till the middle of March and then, and was booked through July, maybe. Um, and then I came back and... What happened was for the first time in a long time, uh, I couldn't travel. And when I travel, I can't write. Like I can't do both at the same time. Like I can't sit in a hotel and keep working. It has to be a concentrated, continuous effort. And if it's broken up, like I can't even pretend like I'm, I'm going to write while I'm on the road or in a hotel or whatever. Um, so it's the first time I've had really long period of continuous and I had a lot of projects in the works and I was able to finish them one after another because, you know, instead of being drawn out over two years, I could just like boom, 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 boom. And I had nowhere to go. I had nothing else to do. <laughs> and so, you know, literally I have six projects, um, Four of them are totally done for me. Um, there's illustrators working on it. One is, is pretty done, but there will be revisions and production on it. And then the one I'm just starting now, uh, which I've been researching and just getting into. So it actually speeded up everything in terms of writing. Um, so suddenly I just have a lot of stuff in the pipeline just waiting to come out, you know. <laughs> so I guess it's good in that respect. So you haven't had, uh, I, I've had uh, this occasionally, uh, more, more, more than occasionally, um, but not continuous. The, the, the anxiety of the, the news and sure. the, oh my God, are we all going to die of the 2020? Um, puts a block in there uh, for me. So that has that been a factor for you or just find, like it? for me the writing is the one place i can escape to so like yeah i'm researching now it's like a very incredibly fascinating world and time and place and it's just like you know i want to go there and it's in the past so it's kind of an interesting era to go to and um you know, so I find that drives me, keeps me motivated and going, just wanting to go back into that world and figure it out and capture it. 
and tell figure out how to tell that story. Um, so yeah, for for me, it's an escape. If I'm just sitting around doing nothing, I'm not very happy. <laughs> like my brain needs to be figuring stuff out all the time. I think. Well, something I, I read in your bio that I, I promised myself I'd ask you about is you uh, you live in Florida and you wander around looking for alligators. Is that right? Um, well, you know, we go out there, we're surrounded by water and like literally behind our house is jungle, swamps and, you know, miles and miles of rivers and things like that. And so we'll go out on the kayaks and, and um, you know, we're looking for wildlife. We have a lot of wildlife. Let's say, you know, this is the place you have a relationship with nature, whether you want to or not, you know, because you're surrounded by it. You're going to see animals every single day, giant birds and lizards and snakes and turtles and, you know, manatees and alligators and kinds of things. So, you know, we're always on, on the lookout for animals of any kind, but, you know, alligators are really interesting and they're pretty cool. They're laid back and you can, You'll see a lot of them in the river and, you know, they're very, like, they're more scared of you than you are of them, um, you know, so it's just like observing and checking them out and things like that, you know. Okay, so you're not, you're not out there like alligator, the, the crocodile hunter, but for alligators and trying to wrestle them or. <laughs> no, very respectful of animals. You want to get close within reason, but, you know, you're not going to touch them or anything like that. I assume you're in, a, in an alligator-proof kayak, but one, <laughs> one whip of the tail, <laughs> you're turned over, right? Well, like I say, tail. you know, they're very um, cautious, and so you're only going to get so close to one. It's not going to not going to come up on you unless you're uh, molesting it in some way, like, you know, then it will try to defend itself. But other than that, it's like, they're cool with you. You're cool with them. <laughs> well, you're kind of, uh, you're kind of an adventurer. Yeah. I mean, you're, you've got a grant to, to have been in Antarctica. What were, what was it you were doing in Antarctica? Well, um, I found out that the National Science Foundation had a grant to go to Antarctica for artists and writers, which is like, you hear that it's it's like what <laughs> and it goes back to the early days of the, the explorers shackleton and scott and those guys they always took a uh, writer artist artist or photographer with them to basically tell the story of their expedition because it's how they kept it in the news and it's also how they raised money for other expeditions um, and it was like a big adventure. It was like the new continent. And um, that tradition has continued. And the idea is to use the arts to explore the wonders of Antarctica and the incredible science that's going on down there. And I'm actually co-chair of a group called the Antarctic Artists and Writers Collective, which is the collective group of all those grantees who have gone to Antarctica over the last 40, 50 years. 
and we've come together for the first time to collaborate, to do shows, to do all kinds of educational work, you know, outreach, um, to kind of highlight uh, and find a way to tell the story of that continent and the people who, and the work that's going on down there. So it's been like an, that was again, a left field out of the blue thing. Um, I had other, re you know, I grew up with National Geographic and the great explorers, you know, from the seventies and stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, the idea that you could go to a place like that is, you know, something I can't not do if it's available. So, um, once I figured out what it was, then it was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and then it's just, it's also a place that gets into your DNA. So people who go, it just never leaves, you know? And so, you know, I've got a couple of projects come out, coming out of that and um, this organization. And it's just like a continuous thing now. I, but I never thought I'd be working on science related stories because I wasn't necessarily good at science as a kid. Um, but I turned that into a positive because I figured out, I mean, a lot of those kids were like me that I work with. And if I can figure out a way to tell the story in a way that would have, I would have understood back then and would have inspired me back then, then that's something I can do. Like I, can take that really complex thing and turn it into like something powerful and amazing and just like, oh, in a way that a scientist would never explain it. Um, and so the easiest, easiest way to highlight that idea is I was working with uh, these uh, paleontologists who were, you know, who had found the first dinosaurs of Antarctica and the hidden forests of Antarctica and you know, I was working with them and you know, they would show me a fossil. It's like, check this out, this fossil's you know, 170 million years old and it's this and that. And I'm looking at it and yeah, it's pretty cool. But you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, well, it's just a rock. You know, it'd be cooler <laughs> if you touch that and you know, the dinosaur came out of it or you touch that and you time traveled back to that period and you could actually walk among those animals in that place. And you could, you know, so then I ended up kind of rewriting that whole idea. And that became this time traveling dino detectives of Antarctica. And the idea, like these kids, um, yeah, can touch something and go back to different periods of time in, you know, all the different phases of Antarctica on all the different animals there and, and like engage with them and have adventures with them and things like that. And it's like, it's heavy into science. It's really accurate, but it's just like so much more fun and immediate and I can understand it, you know? Like it took me a long time to figure out like, how do you track the story of the plate tectonics in the original land sphere and how it broke up into two and how it ended up as Antarctica you know, and how animals developed and how there wasn't one great dying extermination, but, you know, several of them and how, you know, how did that work and how did that go from the uh, Triassic period to Jurassic to this and that and 
how did Antarctica turn from a lush forest into a barren wasteland? You know, but once I could figure it out in an easy way that you could and visualize it and make it immediate, then everything just became clear, you know, but it took a long time to figure it out. Um, but now it's really easy. Now you can read that and you can totally get it straight up, you know, boom. Um, so that's something I could do, right? Like, so I like this idea of being a science translator, even for the scientists themselves, because, you know, you talk to them, they just go off. They're in such micro detail. You, you know, you have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and, but you could see they're really passionate. You could see them go off into the space in their head and they're just like, so I like to take them back to their origin story, you know, like, like what was that moment when you were a kid, that first moment where science or nature kind of exploded your brain? Like, what was that moment? And they think about it and it's usually like something very personal, like they were in a cornfield with their dad in the middle of the night and he had brought this telescope and he set up in this cornfield and we're sitting there in the dark and suddenly like this meteor shower, you know, something like this personal, intimate and then how that got them interested in the stars and then he got his own telescope and then you know he's, he met all these other astronomers in the fields you know and started to see what they were interested in. you know next thing you know you know he graduates he gets goes to college he becomes interested in astronomy this and that and then you know and then how it got him to antarctica and how it got him to study that specific thing he's doing you know, he's sending up hot air balloons, uh, traversing, circumnavigating the continent of Antarctica, capturing cosmic rays so that they can pinpoint the exact origin of the Big Bang, you know, by the cosmic rays and figuring out where they're coming from, you know, and tracking, you know, like all this amazing stuff. But when you just sat down and talked with them for an hour, you would never get that story. Like, you would hear supernovas, you would hear this, you'd hear that, you'd hear, you know, but you wouldn't piece it together as a powerful thing, but then you could spit it back. It's like, so you're using a hot air balloon to capture cosmic rays, you know, stardust, so you could find, pinpoint the exact origin of the Big Bang, right? And they have to think about it, and it's like, yeah, I think that's, that's what we're doing. Like, but they don't think of it in such simple, powerful terms, right? So, so you're translating it while you're talking to them and then confirming with them that yes, the translation. Yeah, because I'm trying to understand it. You know, it's like, like, so what are you saying? You're saying this, you're saying that, like what, you know, pretend you're talking to a child, like how would you say that, you know? Because I need to understand. <laughs> what you're doing out here and why you've been doing it for 15 years, you know, on the most extreme place on earth, right? Um, so it's that kind of thing. Like that's a whole unique world. It's just like everything else I do in terms of being grabbed by a place and a time and people that are doing something unique that I haven't seen written about in a way that I could see it. And so that's just me telling the story. It happens to be in Antarctica this time. It happens to be a world of science, but it's not in my head, not different than ghetto cowboy, right? It's the same comes from the same place in my head of 
trying to understand a place. Fascinating. You need to have your own, uh, you know, uh, travels with Greg Neary television show. We we need to see this. Yeah, you know, we're <laughs> we're talking about that. I mean, we're doing some offshoot stuff for that dinosaur project. Um, so we're filming some things. Um, so I will be acting as a host for short little segment things, you know, but we're obviously not going to be shooting on the road and, you know, on location. But we're doing little things um, because I always joked about that, you know, <laughs> that would be a cool thing to do, like travel and tell stories, right? When you have these conversations, are you uh, taking notes? Are you recording them? Or is it just all up here in your author's brain stored away for later? Um, both. I mean, some are casual. So you're coming across people or you're being introduced to somebody. And so you're just talking. But if I'm really sitting down, I want to just record it and take notes afterwards. Like, I don't want to stop and write things down. I just want to have a conversation. So... You know, and I found out that when you talk to people, like I could talk to anybody, it doesn't matter. They could be a politician, they could be a, in prison, they can be a kid, they could be a scientist, you know. If you just treat them as equals, like not here, not here, and just talking straight as human to human, like people will tell you things immediately. Like they'll open up and tell you things that they don't tell people. Um, mostly because nobody, most people don't get interviewed, right? I mean, just your normal everyday person does not, people aren't coming up to them and saying, hey, can I interview you? Can I talk, can we sit down and talk? I wanna know about your life. I wanna know about this place and what is going on here. Like that's something that nobody ever asked them. So when somebody comes along and really wants to know, like people will tell you <laughs> everything, you know. So, so you I mean, just sit down, look them in the eye and ask open any questions and let them go? Yeah, and then we just have a conversation and it goes wherever it goes, you know, and we could talk for a couple hours or whatever. And there's things I couldn't imagine will come out of that conversation. It's like, oh, <laughs> Record those conversations. That podcast would crush this one. It would be amazing. <laughs> I would I would very much enjoy hearing them. I, I bet I wouldn't be the only one. <laughs> so what's the uh, what's the most dangerous place you've ever been? Most dangerous? Well, basically Antarctica is the most dangerous because I mean, people do die there. And, you know, I knew somebody who died there and... Um, you know, their number one job is to basically keep you alive. <laughs> so there's incredible, I mean, you have to go through a whole week of training when you first get there, just like everything just for surviving, survival. Um, and then, you know, so technically, I never, f mostly didn't feel it was dangerous, um, although there was, there were definite times where it was very dangerous. Um, so that would probably qualify. I mean, I go into play, I've been to neighborhoods, you know, I did a lot of work with, you know, gangs and things and in Los Angeles early on. And 
you know, those were really dangerous neighborhoods, but I always felt those kids, you know, once you start talking to them, took them out of that world, they were really like open and kind of sweet and innocent because they didn't get to be that way, right? They had to be hardcore to exist, but you took them out of that place and you treated them differently they would suddenly revert to like this kid that they never were, you know? So yeah, I don't ever feel those places are dangerous, even though most people would be like, you're going where? <laughs> you know, so I'll do a lot of, I do a lot of juvenile detention facilities and things like that and go to really tough schools and they're like often the best places. Well, I've got to. I'm got to make sure I ask you about uh, Concrete Cowboy. I believe that's out in Canada now and going to be available here soon. Well, it it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival, so it's not out. It's kind of that was where it first showed, and um, we're in discussions right now for distribution. Um, of course, you know, with all, all because all the theaters closed and everything, that was a process that was supposed to happen you know, start back in March, but then it suddenly, you know, n none of the studios or distribution places knew what was going to happen. So everybody just kind of stopped <laughs> for however long. And it's only been in the last month that things have started to resume and people are figuring stuff out. And so I'm hoping that it will come out very soon. There's, they definitely want to push it for award season. Um, it's gotten really great re reviews and responses. And so I think, you know, we're looking to get it out before the end of the year, you know, to qualify and that kind of thing. And then, you know, it'll end up on Netflix and all that. <laughs> so what's that? I, I, you know, I've seen the, the photo of you with, uh, Roland DeShane himself is, is, is playing hat. My God. <laughs> <laughs> the best cowboy that, that maybe was ever on film, right there playing your cowboy. There's Idris Elba, there's Method Man, there's you on the set. What's that experience? That's got to be, is it amazing or is it, no, this isn't my book. <laughs> uh, it was very meta because I wrote a story, a fictional story about a real place inspired by real events and real people. And I go on the set and we're shooting in the actual locations and the real people that inspired the story are there some of them are in the movie and you know so i will see those people talking with the actors who are playing characters i wrote inspired by those people in this place where they actually are standing physically and somebody's filming it. Um, so I really felt like, I mean, I felt one, it felt like it went back to the original source material, which was the real place and the real people. And so I felt like I could step back. Like that, that was the most important thing to me is that the real place and the real people were captured and shown for the first time. And so I could just step back and let it happen. 
Um, so I just observed. My first reaction when I met Idris and Caleb and all those people, because they all, uh, several, well, Method Man and Idris and Caleb were all shooting that first morning I walked in. And they all kind of showed up at the same time and they all walked past me in costume. And my first reaction was not, oh, that's Idris Elba. My first reaction was, oh, that's Harper and that's Cole and that's, you know, Leroy. Um, so that was kind of interesting <laughs> and good, you know, if that's my first thing. Um, but everyone was really cool. Uh, I was kind of undercover, like I didn't want to, you know, so only a few people knew I was there unless I, you know, went to go talk to them. Um, you didn't walk around in a shirt that said, Genary author of the project you're working on? So it was just cool overall, and everyone, you know, gave back to it. You know, all these actors did it for nothing, pretty much, and um a lot of amazing people you know threw their hats into the ring just because they wanted to see it happen and you know so it was very unusual how it happened and and how quickly it came together and just how it uh felt so you know for for kids you know like students they're all like you know if i talk about caleb from stranger things they're all like and then all the adults are Idris Elba or, you know, Method Man or this or these other act oh, amazing oh, actors. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're all really cool and very, like, real and, and, you know, we're just doing it to be a part of it. So that was, it was a lot of, first, you know, it was, it was Caleb's first real dramatic role. You know, he could sink his teeth in and it was a very different kind of role for Idris. Um, and then the, 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 the real people who were acting in it for the first time did a, an amazing job. Like they were total naturals, you know, so they totally hold their own with those actors. And so it felt like a really community thing. And while there are things that are different in it, I felt it at the end, it felt the same to me. Like it, captured the exact feeling I, I felt with that story, with my story. And, uh, you know, having a filmmaking background, I understood everything, you know, why certain things change or that change or this change, but, you know, the heart of it is all there. So I was pretty happy with how everything went in the end result. Did you uh, did you film a little Stan Lee style cameo? I don't have a little cameo. Um, what was I saying? Oh, someone with uh, the Guardian was writing about it, and they had these lists of categories. Um, you know, best this or best that, or it was kind of tongue in cheek a little bit. Um, but they had a category for best horse. And it was Boo from Concrete Cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. 
Well, while we're uh, while we're talking about film, I've got a question. It's just for me. Uh, it's a selfish question, and I, I I can't not ask it because I had read uh, in your review for oh, what's the Leonardo DiCaprio Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that you rented oh. movies from Quentin Tarantino before he was Reservoir Dogs, Quentin's Tarantino, right? right? So, yeah, my parents lived in Manhattan Beach in Southern California, and Video Archives was their video store. And I, I was, I think I was just starting college. And so I, when I come back for summers and stuff, you know, that's where I would go to rent movies. And I remember all these guys. It was him and Roger Avery and a few other, um, and they were all like super nerdy film geeks, you know, and knew everything. I remember having conversations. I was, you know, I had a film major too, so I was very film literate. And I would go in and be looking for something and we would strike up a conversation about, you know, whatever, you know, uh, British cinema in the 60s or whatever. Um, But we always used to joke like, you know, ah, these guys, they're going to be working in video stores till they die, you know. Um, so you weren't struck immediately like here is greatness I can no, feel it radiating <laughs> but but I did see him throughout the, I did see him throughout the whole process so I saw Reservoir Dogs before it came out at a screen at a little private screening I saw him pacing the hallways at the the main cinema plex in Century City on the night that it opened and I would see him around. Yeah, I knew people who worked with him on different things or, you know, I would go to all these screenings and, you know, you would occasionally see him all, you know, just because I would see a lot of obscure movies and he would see them too, right? So, but I mean, I never like, you know, he wouldn't know me for anything, but <laughs> I just, yeah, I can still see what he looked like back, you know, before he became a filmmaker. And I also saw part of the first film he did that got destroyed. Um, the birthday well, movie. Or, yeah, the birth. Yeah, it was really bad. And I think being destroyed was not an, maybe an accident. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no one can ever see him with this terrible movie. Ah, isn't that, isn't that just the worst look? <laughs> right. That was my selfish question. I've got a question that my father-in-law will disown me if I don't ask you about Chick Corea, because oh. there you are in college and you get to you get to work with Chick Corea. What's that experience? So I was a film major, and also you know I came from an artist background, so I was a painter and things like that. I wanted to, for my final project, I wanted to do something that used both, and so I decided I would do this animated film even though I'd never done an animated film before. And I had this story called a Picasso on the beach. Um, and I heard this track that Chikoria did. And suddenly like I could see the whole movie, like that soundtrack was literally like the voices of the characters and it, like it just played perfectly. And so I just wrote, I mean, I figured out where he was, I think, um, from one of his albums. It was recorded in in, a, in L.A., and I know he co-owned a studio, you know, with Paul McCartney. And so I was able to, like, figure out how to send a letter. And then 
you know, his assistant wrote me back and and then we ended up talking and I told him what I wanted to do. And he basically gave me the like original uh, recordings, you know, different things so you could separate things and I could do whatever I wanted with it. And um, it came out really nicely, like so well that after it was finished and I sent it to him, he, and this was back in VHS days, um, he wanted me to give him like a whole, I forget, like a whole batch because he wanted to send them to his friends as a Christmas present. Um, so, and I remember I did, I did go to a party at that studio in Los Angeles, like with all these famous musicians and stuff around us. But he's a cool guy. He, in fact, lives across the bay now in Tampa Bay. He lives in Clearwater, um, although I haven't you know, seen him here. <laughs> I know he's there. But, you know, so that was my first uh, interaction with like a real artist, you know. And he was totally cool. And he was like totally cool to reach out to like a student who just wanted to do something he could dig what I wanted to do with it. And then also out of that, I met Ray Bradbury because after I finished the movie, like this brilliant story and I'd shown it around and it gotten all these awards and it had actually, it was picked up and shown like on HBO and Showtime back when they showed shorts. And somebody wrote me and it's like, that's that's the Ray Bradbury story, right? And I, I was like, what are you talking about? It's like this story, and he, you know, told me the title, and I, I appeared in some obscure anthology, and, and it was the exact story. I mean, not exactly exact idea of the story. And I was like, oh man, did I steal this from Ray Bradbury? <laughs> it's like, um, even though it was different, you know, but. I lived in LA and Ray Bradbury was always doing book signings around LA. So the next time I saw he was doing a book signing, I just showed up with a copy of my movie and I said something like, oh, I may have stolen this from you, but I'm not sure. <laughs> you could be the judge. And, you know, uh, and then I was work I was working in a post-production house and, you know, I was like just a gopher, just a bottom rung person, just a lackey, you know, who didn't get any respect. Nobody knew my true greatness and, you know, um, but my one payoff was, you know, I was the guy who, you know, always had to go pick up my boss's clothes from the dry cleaner and his, his car wash and that kind of stuff. You know, I was with him and he was treating us the way he normally treated us and over the the speaker, the secretary said something like, uh, Greg Neri, Greg Neri, there's a call from Ray Bradbury for you. And <laughs> I was like, oh, excuse me, I have to talk with Ray. <laughs> and he was just calling back to tell me that it was, he had no problem with it. He thought my version was totally different than his. And, you know, sometimes things just come out of the ether and it's how he finds stories. And so it was, it was cool. So, yeah. out, of that, uh, out of that experience, I got to meet like two really cool artists with really unique visions who did things their way, you know. 
So that was... Hey, uh, pivoting back to your greatness, because I feel like I've just asked you about a litany of, uh, of other famous people I'm talking to uh, to the Eugene Um I wanted to ask you about winning a Karata, a Karata Scott uh, King honor for, for Yummy. Um, what is that experience for all of the authors there listening, dreaming of that experience happening to them? Is that the moment you know you've made it, or has that moment happened yet? Um. Well, I was out of the country when it happened, so it was kind of different. And I didn't actually get to go to the ceremony, so the, that was different too. Um, so it was basically just me, you know, you know, like the morning that they announced those awards, like the Newberry and all those awards are announced on the same morning, they call people like at seven in the morning. So if you have a book out and you think it's award worthy, and you know they're going to make those calls that morning, whether they want to or not. Like people are aware, like if the phone rings, they're going to be like. Psh. But you know, I was in Germany, and so my sense of time was totally off. I didn't, and I, so I wasn't, and I was out of out of the whole thing, so I didn't really know anything. And um, and I was on another call, and I saw it come up on the you know call waiting thing. I saw, could see who it was, and I was like, oh, but I couldn't switch over, so I didn't actually get to talk to them, which is like a big thing, that moment when they talk to the people and you get to have a little moment with the awards committee and everybody celebrates. You know. But the, the plus of that was I have it that moment recorded, right, because it's it was on the phone message like that thing, and so I could actually send that to all my people you know so they they could hear it too so it was nice but but because i wasn't there it wasn't as you know momentous i guess <laughs> um you know things happen s in slow motion so to me there's no like one moment it's all part of what you do you know and and like even the movie, I mean, I, I came out of Hollywood. And so even with the movie, I was very low key about it because I've seen the sure bets fall apart at the last minute. I've seen like things in production, stop production. I've seen things lose their financing after the sh things have been shot and just all kinds of things. So, so I was very low key and I was like, yeah, we're gonna, you know, we've been talking a couple of years and this person is involved now. This person is involved. Yeah, it's great. But my thing is like, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, and yeah, now we have the money and now we're going to shoot and like, yeah, okay, sure. Um, yeah, we're going to shoot in Philly. We got this date and you know, da, da, da. I'm like, okay. And it's like, so if I show up, there'll actually be people there. Is that what you're telling me? It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know, then you see everything goes great and then you you actually see it and it actually comes together and it's actually really good film. And then you think and then you ease up and you think, oh, OK, now we got it made. Like what could possibly happen? I mean, a pandemic? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a great that's always the great equal equalizer, like to keep you grounded. You can't ever get too overly excited about anything yeah you have to appreciate everything that comes your way 
but that's everything, just the whole experience of it. All of it's equal to me. Um, and so, you know, you take everything in stride and you're grateful for it, um, but you don't like over, <laughs> you don't get too high, you don't get too low. You just, the thing is always about the story, you know, just like the whole process. So that, you know, you go through different periods, but in the end, it's always about the work, so. With all the things uh, you, you've done, you've done graphic novels, film, animation, uh, poetry, uh, prose, all, everything. Uh, is there still a medium that you're yearning to work in? Is there a musical you might write one day? Actually, I've had schools translate my books into theater. And one, I saw a school in Chicago do kind of a postmodern dance for yummy you know which was kind of crazy and and also like a musical for another book so you know the students will do it for me <laughs> um i just finished like one of my antarctica projects that i just finished um that one's really unusual and different in it I can't even describe it, but it's it combines, you know, my photography and art and writing and poetry and storytelling and uh, it's funny and tragic and you know exciting and all these things. And it's it's really a book about the ex trying to capture the experience, this idea that. Um, Antarctica gets in your DNA and doesn't leave. So I had to come up with a very unusual way to tell that story. And it was, but it was very organic and it went through, started off as a graphic novel, threw that away, turned into another kind of comic thing, didn't do that. And then, you know, in the process of doing, you know, I, when I go to schools, I give talks and I'm showing slides and things and telling stories and, that book came out of that experience because you have an immediate reaction when you show a picture and you tell a story and the kids in front are like, what? You just slack jaw, like what? Um, like, you know where the good stuff is, you know? And so I started building that story off that slideshow and just expanding it in unusual ways. So I actually wrote and put the story together in PowerPoint, which is what I was using for the presentations, right? And I wasn't doing it on purpose. It was just kind of, I was using it to explore something and just building off of it. And then it just kind of turned into a good way to tell that story. And I could use my photos and insert these illustrations into them um, and put in maps and draw on them and all kinds of stuff. And so it's very unusual and Kind of like a field guide, you know, very homemade in a way. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to call it yet, <laughs> like in terms of format. But uh, sounds like awesome. Will suffice. Yeah. <laughs> just just sit there, esteemed audience. You will enjoy awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I'm looking at our time, and it is where did it go? 
<laughs> we, yeah. we, we had too much fun. If I, if, if, I've got maybe two more questions. We call it a night. Sure. Is that reasonable? Sure. Yeah. Um, esteemed audience knows I have to ask because I ask everybody. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of my thing. Uh, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Um. Well, my first memory that I can remember is of like a shooting star kind of thing, um, which could have been, you know, it was around the time period where certain artifacts from space were burning up in our atmosphere, things like that, you know, and not, but, you know, my active imagination as a kid, you know, imagining it being a UFO or things like that, but. Um, I haven't seen anything where it's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> um, and ghosts, I've, you know, I've been in, I slept in the Queen Mary, which is supposed to be haunted and had a couple of weird things, <laughs> doors closing by themselves and just like, where you feel some kind of presence or something, but nothing too dramatic. <laughs> Wasn't enough to make you a believer? Well, I definitely believe there's extraterrestrial life, there's, that there's life in the universe for sure. Whether they're UFOs as have been depicted, you know, in films and books, you know, it's possible. It's interesting. Um, I believe there could be some kind of uh, leftover artifact of of humans, you know, in some way, you know, like some space in between dimensions, but I, I'm not too specific about it. <laughs> Fair enough. What I want is while you're out looking for alligators, I want a flying saucer to land and you have a long conversation with the occupants and then we're going to get that sci-fi epic set in space because it won't be fantastic right. anymore. You'll have the facts. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, when my daughter was growing up, she was like, you know, why don't you write a story about dragons? And I'm, I, my answer was like, well, as soon as I see a real dragon, I'll write about it. You know, so <laughs> I was waiting for that. When you hear that, aliens, this is your chance. You could be the star <laughs> of a Neary novel. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you uh, so much for, for making the time. Uh, my, uh, my last question for you is, is always some variation of, if there was some bit of advice you could go back and give yourself toward the beginning of your career that would have made uh, the path easier for you and might make the path easier for all the authors listening to us uh, and filmmakers, what uh, what would you go back and tell yourself? Well, you know, I joke because if I wanted to make a lot of money, I could do one thing, like, Stephen King. Now you pick up a Stephen King book, you know what you're in for, right? You pick up one of my books, you don't know what you're in for. Um, and so I don't have the branding power of Stephen King, but that's by my own choice because I'm so interested in so many things and so many different kinds of stories. So um, I don't know what advice I would I'm pretty happy how things played out. Um, you know, I started writing at a relatively late because I had a career in film and I had a career in digital media. And so it was kind of like the unexpected 
bonus. Um, and I feel like you're able to handle things much better when you're older and you've had some life behind you and um, you don't have great success in the beginning. I was to say maybe, because I have plenty of friends who, you know, became big stars right off the bat. And I always felt, you know, you can only go downhill from there, you know, and me, I feel I'm flying under the radar. And so I'm able to do a lot more things because of that. Nobody tells me what to do, or I should write this, or I should write that. You know, I do what I want. I do how I want it. And they keep buying it. Um, I don't have huge mega blockbusters, but they do pretty good for themselves and they keep getting read and they have long shelf lives and um, an audience says, you know, always there. Uh, it's been very organic and growing experience with them. So I would just say don't get hung up on other people's success, you know, just it's good to fly under the radar um, and and get to do what you want to do and get to travel the world because of it, you know, and um, that's pretty amazing in and of itself. So I would not trade that for, you know, Harry Potter level success. <laughs> No, that seems fraught with peril just recently. <laughs> um, do you worry uh, now that you've been on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast and you're about to be blasted into the stratosphere? And of course, uh, once Concrete Cowboy comes out and wins all the awards, that that might take that away from you, that you you will be the blockbuster name? Well, I don't know. I always like to think of it like if that book becomes blockbuster, that's fine with me. <laughs> you know? like, it's, it's like having children. You want them to do well, right? So me, myself, I don't particularly need it. Um, but if a particular project does well and it shines a light on that, what that book is about in that community, then that's a total win for me. That's the perfect note to end, done. Um, Mr. New, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, learn more about you, watch your tour videos, all that good stuff? Yeah, you can find everything on my website at gneary.com and uh, tons of information, articles and videos and all kinds of buried treasures. And as always, esteemed audience, go to middlegradeninja.com, read uh, Mr. Neary's original inter seven question interview. I'll link to it in the show notes. Don't miss that. Uh, read interviews with hundreds of other literary agents, uh, authors, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in. Uh, download your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It'll change your life. And as always, God willing that I'm alive. I'll see you next week.